Analysts, journalists, and activists have been raising the alarm on the dangers of transnational kleptocracy to democracy and governance for decades. And recent events have galvanized the world's attention on these issues in a way unimaginable a few years ago. After Russia's invasion of Ukraine, democracies responded with measures to restrict kleptocrats' access to their financial systems. And today, we want to talk about these measures and what will drive the next stage in the fight against transnational kleptocracy. I'm Melissa Aiton. I'm a senior program officer at the National Endowment for Democracy's International Forum for Democratic Studies. And I'm John Glenn, senior director of the International Forum. You're listening to Power 3.0, a podcast that bridges the gap between ideas and practice on global challenges to democracy. We talk with civic activists, experts, and thinkers from around the world on complex challenges, such as defending against disinformation or fighting corruption and kleptocracy, as well as challenges on the horizon, such as emerging technologies and their implications for democracy. We're joined today by Jason Sharman. Jason is the Sir Patrick Sheehy Professor of International Relations in the Department of Politics and International Studies at Cambridge University. We had the chance to talk with him recently on the roof deck of the National Endowment and got really excited about hearing about his groundbreaking work on the kleptocracy challenge. Much of his work has driven the understanding and debate about how kleptocrats evade sanctions, regulations, and other restrictions, and I'm so pleased we could continue that conversation here on this podcast. Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for inviting me. So let me just start by asking you about the big issue of the day. Russia's invasion of Ukraine. How has this conflict changed the playing field for the fight against transnational kleptocracy? I think the invasion has been mainly positive in terms of the policy effect, obviously a great tragedy in itself, but in terms of the policy ramifications for combating kleptocracy, um, we've seen a lot of movement since February the 24th, a lot of political momentum that otherwise wouldn't be there. That's already been reflected in legislative change as well. But I think the political dynamics, why they're mainly positive, are not exclusively positive. So maybe I'll just briefly deal with the, the positives and then, then the negatives. As I say, it's really, it's put the issue in the spotlight. We've seen unprecedented attention to oligarchs and kleptocrats in the United States, uh, in Western Europe. And as I say, this has already translated into legislation. However, I mean, most of the people getting attention have been Russian kleptocrats. Um, and we know that, you know, kleptocrats come from a variety of countries. So while the laws that are being passed really have one particular country in mind, to the extent particularly we see other energy producers actually coming under less political pressure, then we may say that there's possibly a bit of a dark side to the focus on Russia if it involves giving other equally corrupt uh, energy producing regimes, perhaps a bit more of a free pass than they would have otherwise got. You know, with the democracy's response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, it's been fairly united, fairly quick, as you mentioned, but it has sort of focused mainly on sanctioning oligarchs, seizing yachts, things like that, which are important, but sort of not enough. I'm wondering what needs to happen next or what should be prioritized to make this a more effective response. I think probably the number one challenge um, beyond the perhaps myopic Russia focus that I mentioned before is really transitioning from freezing to seizing. Um, and I think it's often easy to read the headlines about money being frozen or a particular asset like a mansion or a yacht or a private jet. But there's a really significant legal difference between an asset being frozen uh, and being confiscated and perhaps then being passed on to victims in the Ukraine or elsewhere. The easy bit is freezing. The hard bit, seizing or confiscation, 
still in the vast majority of cases lies ahead of us. Um, so perhaps to use a, a sporting metaphor, the breezing is the sprint and the seizing is the marathon. So I think that's the transition we've got to look for now. And I think it's important to manage expectations there because to actually confiscate assets tends to be a fairly long, drawn-out process that goes into the courts and takes really years, um, whereas applying sanctions and freezing can be done literally overnight. And we've seen that happen very quickly. So I think that distinction is really important to keep in mind, particularly as a war looks to be increasingly long and drawn out. Jason, can I follow up on that? You know, for those in the kleptocracy space, that distinction is really clear. But tell us more about why this is hard and what governments and others need if they're going to do this hard work. Sure. I mean, basically, we have all sorts of property rights that are guaranteed by law and in some cases guaranteed by the Constitution, too. So if the government is going to take away your stuff or even a foreigner's stuff, they have to have a really good reason why. And it has to go through the legal system. It can't just be an executive decree. And basically, anytime you go to the court system and the legal system to get a judgment, it takes a long time. Um, as I say, months, but really years. And the freezing part is an administrative or executive thing. But as I say, that confiscation, it's not a president or a minister, it's a judge. Um, and that means you've got to have a lot of evidence and that can be difficult where you've got to get this evidence from Russia. Obviously, the Russian government's not going to cooperate. Um, the system of passing evidence, even on countries that get on well, doesn't work particularly well. And now, of course, where you've got a Russia that's anything but cooperative, really, the more you think about it, the harder it gets to see these mansions, these yachts and these planes being confiscated. Uh, it just involves a lot of time consuming and often very expensive legal work. It just strikes me the irony is that that's why they store their resources in these systems. It's because of the protections that you're describing. Exactly. I mean, if you've stolen things, you don't want them to be taken from you. Crooks like the rule of law as long as it protects the stuff they've stolen. And exactly as you say, this is why we see kleptocrats do put their assets in the West, in places like the United States, in places like Western Europe, exactly because of the property protections they enjoy by law. At the same time, those strong rule law protections are one of the most important features of democracy. So we don't want to do anything that skirts that protection, which in my mind sort of explains why sanctions are not an effective response, because it gets so complicated and sort of butts against what we consider to be a really important part of democracy and democratic values. Yeah, I mean, I think it's easy to have an emotional response and say, look, these guys are pretty shady and they've got all this ill-gotten wealth. The Ukraine is in desperate need of money, both to prosecute the war and then for reconstruction. Why can't we just grab this stuff, take it away from people who don't deserve to have the money and ship it to the Ukraine? And I can see the kind of emotional and policy appeal of that, but it would really mean trashing the rule of law in very important respects. To that extent would be something of an own goal or a pyrrhic victory, because presumably the rule of law is something that's you know, exactly one of the most important things that's being fought for in this conflict. Jason, maybe I can switch gears a bit in the time that we have there. I thought the research you, Michael Finley, and Daniel Nielsen did on your Global Shell Games book in 2014 was remarkable, in which you looked at, okay, we've made these reforms, how successful are they, and how can kleptocrats evade them or not? In particular, I remember looking at issues around the way there were different risk profiles that we were asking governments to use when assessing the creation of new companies, and finding them not as strong as you might have hoped. Tell me a little bit more about that work, but in particular, I understand you're working on an update to that. 
That's right. So the intuition behind the study is if you want to find out how well or how badly rules work, you should try to break them and see what happens. When you ask banks or people from the financial sector for certain products, um, they've got a duty to know their customer. So you should be able to say, look, before we're going to let you have a company or a bank account, we really need to know who you are uh, just to check that you're not a sanctioned individual or a money launderer, corrupt official, whatever it might be. And so we've been saying, well, Look, when you actually go shopping for corporate bank accounts or shell companies, do people in the private sector do what the rules say they should and force us to prove our identities? And the answer is sometimes yes, but unfortunately, sometimes no. And even though these rules mandating corporate and banking transparency, i.e. being able to see who's really in control, have been in place for 20 years, we find that a worrying number of banks and law firms are willing to sell companies or set up bank accounts, no questions asked, and really flouting the letter of the law. So, I mean, but laws are national. Did you see any variation depending on where those laws were? Was there some places that were better or worse than others? We did. And at least in the first iteration, the results were in some ways the exact opposite of the conventional wisdom. And the conventional wisdom is uh, there are these small island states with palm trees and nice beaches and their tax havens and their sunny places for shady people. And they're associated with financial crime and money laundering and tax evasion and so on. In fact, we found that the small island jurisdictions tended to be more rigorous and more strict in applying these rules about transparency and knowing their customers. And it was, in fact, kind of countries like the United States, the United Kingdom and Australia, which tend to hold themselves up as paragons of virtue, which were actually much more likely to set up companies or bank accounts, no questions asked. So as I say, exactly the opposite of the result that the conventional wisdom would suggest. Do you place the blame, so to speak, on the private sector? Is there something that needs to be strengthened in the regulations? What would be something that could make people follow those those restrictions and whatnot? Can I pick up on Melissa just to her observation with the private sector? I always feel like the work you guys do about the enablers in democratic society is important. Maybe we can pick out who those enablers are in particular, whether, as Melissa says, they bear a certain sense of responsibility. Sure. So if you're involved in major financial crime, like tax evasion or sanctions busting or money laundering, it's not a do-it-yourself affair. Uh, if you're a kleptocrat, you need professional help. And professional help means highly trained and skilled financial intermediaries, people in banks, lawyers, consultants, a whole range of people. And those people tend to cluster in places like New York and London and Zurich and so on. And as you say, they're enablers because in order for financial crime to happen, you need at least the unwitting support and assistance of people like that. In terms of Melissa's question of what can be done better, I think in this area in general, it's almost never about imposing new laws and almost always about better enforcing the laws that are on the books but are left as something as a dead letter. And that particularly includes the laws that regulate these enablers, bankers, lawyers, consultants, and so on. Because really, the situation now is that when these enablers flout the rules, as unfortunately too often they do, they are almost never held accountable for their misdeeds. And as long as we don't fix that, the chances of us making progress are unfortunately pretty low.
Just to switch gears, I'm wondering what you've seen as the biggest change in the fight against kleptocracy. And also, what do you see as the next stage of the challenge? Sure. I mean, I think over the last 10 years, the biggest change is that we've got hugely more information about the practices of kleptocracy and related financial crime, corruption, fraud, money laundering, and so on. And that's particularly, I think, because of civil society and these big data dumps, things like the Panama Papers in 2016. It's almost become an annual event now that you have civil society groups like the International Consortium for Investigative Journalists. Um, Other NGOs have done really, really pioneering work, not just in putting out this information, but then in analysing it, in packaging it for the press, and as a result, doing a really effective job of uh, pushing for political action and policy action on this. So that's been the the biggest change, and it's a very positive one. Obviously, if you're studying secret illegal behavior, the major problem you have is, well, look, if it's secret and illegal, how are you going to find out about it? Uh, And until 10 years ago, the answer was we generally didn't. A real game changer now has been, as I say, these massive serial data dumps. So that's the good news. The less good news, and this gets on to the second part of the question about what should change next, is just because we know about financial crime doesn't mean we're doing a better job necessarily in stopping it. So there's been something of a disconnect whereby a huge increase in the amount of information we have about these crimes, about the people who commit them, about the people and professions that enable them has not translated into increased enforcement. Still, the chances are, if you're involved in major financial crime, 99 times out of 100, you'll get away with it. The tainted assets will not be detected, they will not be frozen, and they will not be confiscated. And obviously, that's something that we really want to change to have a much more effective system of enforcement than we do today. I really take your point about the resourcing capabilities to actually sort of follow up with the letter of the law, as you say. But, you know, in recent memory, and I look ahead to what's coming, I, I'm really thinking about there's this summit for democracy that happened last December, another one sort of coming in. It identifies corruption and fighting corruption as one of the main pillars in the Biden administration. You know, talked about more information being available, but also what that means establishes for the first time fighting corruption as a core national security interest. What do you make of that? First off, I think, I mean, it's a really positive development. I think it makes a great deal of sense and it's overdue. I think, again, if we look back well before the Russian invasion this year, I mean, if you look at the collapse of the government in Afghanistan, um, if you look at the military collapse of much of the Iraqi armed forces in the face of ISIS in 2014, if you think back to the Arab Spring a little over a decade before now, I think there's actually a pretty close linkage between corruption and national security. And so to that extent, I find it both kind of plausible in a scholarly sense, but also, you know, really helpful in a policy sense that these two agenda items of national security and fighting corruption are linked together, as I say, as I think they should be. Seems like it creates opportunities for this to sort of, you know, not just be the work of the corruption folks, but to really understand why this matters and isn't just an unfortunate feature of human nature, as it were. Yeah, I mean, I think often the fight against corruption has been portrayed implicitly as international do-gooding, kind of charity work you do, you know, just because that's a nice thing to do and we morally elevate ourselves by doing so. I think we probably do morally elevate ourselves by doing so, but I think it also advances very important national interests, including national security interests. 
So fighting corruption is not charity work. It's not social work. It's very important for the core interests of many countries, and I think particularly the United States. So as I say, I think the recognition of that linkage is very positive. And as Melissa says, it's core to our own democratic values. Jason, can I pick up on your part on civil society, though? I think you've really put your finger on something that we at the National Endowment for Democracy actually focus a lot on in our work supporting people around the world, really, who are engaged in this fight. What do they need to be effective, and what are the risks that they face in doing this work, which is actually often quite not just challenging, but at times dangerous? I think... When we think of fighting crime in general and fighting financial crime or corruption in particular, we tend to think about the state. We think about the police, about judges, about prisons, and that's pretty reasonable. But as I foreshadowed earlier on, I think the biggest and probably most positive changes that have happened over the last 10 years, and probably the area which has the most potential for further change in future is beyond the state. And I think particularly civil society is one of the most important parts there. Now, as I say, they've done a huge service by releasing all this information that they've got. But I think this is not the only thing they've done in that we've actually seen a really interesting transition from civil society to actually beginning to investigate and enforce things themselves, even to the extent of civil society in places like France or Spain, taking the next step, going to court and directly bringing cases against kleptocrats from places like Equatorial Guinea or or Syria. So again, I mean, just because we think of enforcement as traditionally the province of the state, of the government, it ain't necessarily so. And I think probably the biggest single specific legal change that I think would be helpful would be giving NGOs, civil society groups, more room to get into the courtroom to bring cases against kleptocrats or their assets directly in a tactical sense, to give them standing so they can take, say, court cases on behalf of foreign victims of corruption. I think that's beginning to happen. But if I had one wish about what would change in the laws about fighting kleptocracy, it would be that one. Give NGOs standing to bring suits in places like the United States and Britain as well. We published a paper by Chichu Alicante, the activist from Equatorial Guinea, on how those Bianmaliki trials came together in France against the leaders and cronies in Equatorial Guinea, and now it looks like Gabon. Um, and that is also an incredibly lengthy and expensive and frankly dangerous process for those activists to be involved with. So I hope we can keep it on the agenda that those activists need a lot of support to do that kind of work, because it's just like going from freezing to seizing is a very long, complicated process. So is civil society activists bringing those cases to trial? Yeah, I mean, I think you're exactly right. Basically, anytime you go into the courtroom, you're probably going to be there for years. And that applies to states bringing action to confiscate assets, but it also applies to NGOs bringing these sorts of cases as well. And anytime you're going to be in the courtroom for years, that means lawyers are going to be employed for years. And as you rightly say, that's very expensive. So this kind of justice doesn't come for free. And I think to that extent, if the state's not funding it, then there's a question of who will. Actually, I think there have been technical changes in the way that lawsuits are financed that makes that easier than it has been in the past, say 10 years ago. And again, to me, this seems like a really nice way that the stars are being aligned, such that it brings legal action into the realm of actors, even when they don't have much money. And most NGOs, of course, um, not incredibly cashed up. It's really interesting. But does it mean NGOs are acting as lawyers or are they working with lawyers or how does that play out? 
a bit of both. So some NGOs, you know, they're employing lawyers, others working closely with a law firm, others a bit like venture capitalists, you've got these people who specifically fund lawsuits to recover assets. Um, if they fail, the funder picks up all of the costs. Uh, if they succeed, the funder takes a certain proportion of the assets recovered. So as I say, I think that there are really quite new and exciting things happening that means that a wider range of actors beyond the state can start taking action against kleptocrats in courts. That doesn't mean it's going to happen quickly. That doesn't mean it's going to happen cheaply. But I still think it's a really positive development. Well, Jason, thanks so much for this conversation. It was as interesting as the one we had on the rooftop not too long ago. At the Power 3.0 podcast, we're so fortunate to have just this incredible network of activists and thinkers who really are on the front lines of the most significant challenges to democracy. And we really want our listeners to get to know them in the way that we know them. So I was wondering if you could just say a little bit about you know, what made you get involved in this work, what sort of experiences have shaped you the most, why are you interested in understanding and, and fighting kleptocracy? Sure. I mean, I think for me, partly scholarly interest and partly personal experience that both came out of the same situation in that my first job as an academic was in rural Bulgaria. And I was teaching at a small university at the time at the end of the 1990s. And I was teaching about really small states. And my cynical students said, well, that's ridiculous. You couldn't have small states of under a million people because they'd just be conquered by the big states and because, you know, it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world of Darwinian competition and international relations. And I found out that, in fact, there are a lot of states that are very small. And I got interested in small island states, and that led me to an interest in tax havens. And then, as I say, at least the stereotype or prejudice that links tax havens with things like tax evasion, but also corruption and money laundering. So in some sense, that's where the scholarly interest came from. Secondly, also being in Bulgaria at the end of the 1990s, it was a country that was seriously afflicted by problems of corruption. And I could see close up the real damage that occurred when a country was run by a kleptocratic elite. You'd see hyperinflation, see a huge outflow of population, could see the health system and the education system had been gutted, just large parts of the state didn't work. Uh, and also this incredible cynicism of the populace that really all of the populace held the politicians really in contempt and unfortunately accurately viewed them as a class of people who were into politics to feather their own nests regardless of the consequences for the country. It's one thing knowing that intellectually, it's another thing seeing it up close and living in such a country. So as I say, for me, it was the combination of those two experiences that really got me interested in this topic. Jason, can you leave our listeners with something to read, a recommendation? Obviously, looking for your update or your book coming up. But at the same time, if they're interested in this, what might they take a look at to follow up on these issues? I think, I mean, a couple of books. One by Casey Michelle on American kleptocracy. Again, corruption tends to be, you know, at first you think, well, that's a problem of faraway countries about which we know little. I think uh, Casey's book is an excellent treatment of how it's up close. Uh, the second one for people who want a bit more of a flavor of the other side of the Atlantic is uh, Oliver Bullough's extremely readable and insightful book about London being the butler to the world, particularly the most unsavory parts of the world. I think both of them, as I say, a great combination of very readable, very gripping, but also really insightful about this important topic. Jason, that's great. That's all for today's episode of the Power 3.0 podcast. For more on these issues, please check out our blog too, Power 3.0, Understanding Modern Authoritarian Influence. 
and all the resources that are available on the NED website, www.ned.org ideas. And join the conversation with us. Facebook, Twitter, you can find us at Think Democracy. Power 3.0 is brought to you by the International Forum for Democratic Studies at the National Endowment for Democracy. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please leave us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and whatever podcast app you use. Special thanks to our podcast production team at the International Forum. Thank you, Rochelle Faust, our producer and sound engineer. We hope you enjoyed the episode and I hope you'll tune in again next time.